Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 166 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm super excited because I am talking to a storycraft legend, John Truby. And we are going to be talking all about his new book, The Anatomy of Genres. But first, to last week's question, which was, what should you be doing that you aren't? Aaron F. Huston said, writing words for nano. Uh, And Genevieve Scholl said, what I should be doing, self-care. I have this toxic idea that I'm not allowed to uh, take time for my self-care because I have so many responsibilities that I need to work on no matter how long I've already been working on things or how tired I am. And doing things like watching a movie, reading a book, taking a nap is a waste of time. I... This is so tricky because, of course, if we want to continue caring uh, and delivering on our responsibilities, then we have a responsibility to ourselves to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves and enabling ourselves to have enough energy to do all of those things and all of those responsibilities. And yet it is this perpetual problem of um, like not feeling like we should get that time or we haven't earned it because we haven't delivered or finished delivering all of our responsibilities. So it's a very tricky balance and I do understand and I definitely as a parent get in that cycle sometimes too. Okay, and kind of on that uh, train of thought, this week's question is what self-limiting beliefs do you have? Now the reason uh, that I am asking this question, no, okay, I'm gonna tell you in the uh, update because there is a reason I'm asking this question. The book recommendation this week is Story Genius by Lisa Cron. Now, this book <laughs> has been on my to-do to do list, my to-read to list for fucking ever, literally forever. I mean, I've owned the book for years and I just haven't got around to reading it. And uh, it came up in a conversation I can't remember who with or when, but recently. And so I decided that uh, because I've been listening to quite a lot of audio of late that I would uh, pop it on audiobook even though I own the book and lo and behold I got through it very quickly so um, yeah and I really loved it and I loved in particular her focus on understanding like the protagonist's motive and their desire and why and I thought it was great and I think I probably will re-listen to the audio at some point and isn't that strange I find it easier to re-listen to audio than reread a book so so weird, isn't it? Anyway, tangent. Right, so on to my personal update then. First, before I dive into my own updates, um, I just wanted to remind you that I am hosting a Black Friday uh, whopping discount in that all of my books and all of my courses are 30% off right now. Uh, and you can use code BLACKFRIDAY30 to get 30% off. And uh, so that includes the Villains course and the Anatomy of Prose the Senses course. And uh, obviously all of my books if you buy direct. So I'm going to put the books link and course link in the show notes. And I have also collated a giant uh, blog post of all of the Black Friday deals going on right now, one of which I've taken up personally. So I have had a subscription to Pro Writing Aid forever. Um, I adore them. As you know, they are one of the show's sponsors and I have just purchased the Lifetime, um, uh, 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 what's it called? Lifetime account? I don't know. Lifetime 
subscription, <laughs> whatever it's called. So I, so I've just, I paid the the big amount, and that's it. Is that's the lifetime subscription now. So um, it, there are also deals. Jenna Moresi has got a discount on her new uh, craft book, Shut Up and Write the Book, which I've read and it's fantastic. Uh, we've got fictionary story uh, teller. We've got uh, Angela Ackerman's One Stop for Writers. We've got a ton of different uh, discounts and deals. So do make sure you go and have a look at those. So in personal news and updates then the reason that I'm asking the question this week what self-limiting beliefs do you have is that I have been working with my Clifton Strengths coach uh, on this and uh, one of the self-limiting beliefs that that I have discovered, uh, I will explain right now for you. So I sent off my secret pen name book to my critique partner and I said to them, take, you know, whatever, however long you need to read it, because I hadn't at that point set a launch date. And to my absolute shock and surprise, they returned it within a couple of days, having uh, read a big chunk of it in one go. And they said some lovely things, which literally, like, I nearly cried. <laughs> I was so happy to hear those those things. And uh, But what it taught me is that um, I expected to have to rewrite a lot of it. And actually a lot of the stuff that I've got to do is quite surface level, just uh, minor tweaks and, and, and sort of changes, really small changes, which was incredibly surprising. And I realized that I thought because I'd written this book fast, that it was going to be crap. And so obviously I had a self-limiting belief that fast or, or even an unconscious bias that fast books equal bad books. And actually I that's not true. And the reason it's not true is because you don't read a book that quickly if it's bad. You just don't. Um, and, and certainly not with the praise that came out of it. And the interesting thing that also happened to me is that my wife is reading this book. My wife does not read my books. <laughs> my wife never reads my books. Uh, but anyway, she decided she was going to read this one. And she has also powered through the book and has also said that um, despite it not being her genre, she has, it might even be one of her favourite books ever. It might be her favourite book ever. And uh, she has mentioned a number of things like uh, she, you know, at work has pulled it out to read uh, on her breaks and stuff, which is just unheard of for her. So, um, and I don't, look, I'm not saying this to toot my own <laughs> because God forbid I should be anything other than modest as a Brit. But um, obviously I didn't fuck it up. <laughs> I mean, I can't have fucked it up, right? I know this is a very small pool of feedback, but um, I'm feeling pretty good. And I feel like for the first time in a long time, my confidence isn't shot. And I know you guys probably think I have loads of confidence, but I actually don't. And so, yeah, I'm actually feeling really quite lovely. And and I think I feel lovely because I wrote this book in complete isolation with no input from anybody. I didn't talk about it. I didn't really tell anybody what, what the plot was. I just did it. And it was like the most me book I could possibly have written. And as a result, and I wrote it really quickly. And that was, this is still the surprise to me. I don't, I mean, I know I did loads of work on the work on, on like prior to putting the first word on the page, but I'm still trying to reconcile having written a fast book well. And and look, I, I put my hands up like I did. I must have had this unconscious bias that fast books were bad books, but it is wrong 
that is wrong. So I was wrong. Hello, hands up, me, Sasha Black was wrong. <laughs> I know, it's like the only time you're gonna hear me say this. Um, but yeah, so this has been a bit of a revelation to me and um, I'm probably gonna get slated now for having said all of this on the podcast. But look, I like to be honest and I like to show you that I am a human and I'm still growing and I'm still making mistakes and learning. And so I guess like, yeah, uh, I have proved myself incorrect. <laughs> and uh, as a result, I'm extremely excited to get this book out onto the market. I I might stop talking about it because it is annoying to talk about something that you can't really talk about. Um, I appreciate that I get irritated when, um, oh, well, well, I don't know. Do you want to hear about the progress of it, even though you won't know like the pen name and stuff? Because I could tell you like, how the, I don't know, how it goes creating a new pen name and trying to do all the lists and all of the things. Um, so yeah, I don't know. If you want to hear about that, then please drop me a uh, message. Otherwise, I might not talk about it anymore just because it's annoying. Uh, however, one thing that I have made a decision on, and I can't remember if I told you this last week, is that I am postponing the next nonfiction book. Not for huge amounts of time, Um just for one book. So I'm going to write the book two in this uh, group of new books under the pen name. Uh, I'm going to write that in January. And then from February, I will late February, I think it will be by the time I finish editing, uh, I will be working on the next nonfiction. So it's only a small delay, uh, especially because we've got Christmas in the way, but it is a tiny delay. And the reason for that is because I if I want to give this new pen name the best shot, I need to have more than one book out. So that is what I'm going to be doing. Uh, in other news, it's been, it's a big news week. <laughs> well, big personal news. I have finished the audiobook, thank God, of the anatomy of a bestseller. And I am so freaking excited to, to get this book on the market. I got to play and like do more voices in the book. So I, I really enjoyed it. Um, Although I apologise for my golem voice. Fucking hell. <laughs> oh, God. When you, when you write a book, you do not think about the consequences of having to fucking narrate it. And there was one throwaway line. <laughs> I'm so mortified. There was a throwaway line in The Anatomy of a Bestseller that was goes something like, and in my best golem voice, blah, 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 blah. And then, like, I say something in a golem, golem voice. Um... And so <laughs> I've had to narrate this book <laughs> and do and do a golem voice and it's fucking awful. Oh, so if, if for no other reason I think you should buy this audiobook just to listen to my terrible golem voice. All the other voices are fantastic, even if I do say so myself. But <laughs> the golem voice is mortifyingly bad anyway I uh, would still love it if you buy this audiobook so uh, where am I with it right so it is with my proofer she is sending me back uh, the final changes today and tomorrow morning I'm going in the booth to do all of the pickups and then I've uh, booked in with the master to send it to him tomorrow evening and then uh, he will he usually turns it around in a couple of days so I suspect I will be loading up the anatomy of a bestseller next week so that is super exciting and obviously I will tell you more and I will once it's live on all of the channels I will pop up a little uh, excerpt on the podcast as well for you guys to listen to um to celebrate the launch so i think that is most of my 
updates. Between now and Christmas, because we don't have a huge amount of time, I am writing a, uh, a two different reader magnets, a warm reader magnet for the back of the book and a cold reader magnet, which is more of a novella that is standalone, can be read sort of in isolation. And then I'm doing all the marketing. So setting up a website, setting up a mailing list and uh, setting up autoresponders. I am researching different Facebook groups and different targets and different types of advertising that I can do and all of this good stuff that you need to do in order to launch a pen name. And I am going to be <laughs> some by some fucking miracle, I'm going to try and find advanced readers. <laughs> whilst being a yeah I mean basically I'm going back to zero and being a complete like just beginner uh because I don't want to out myself and so yeah I don't know it's I don't know how I'm gonna do this but anyway so I will be looking for advanced readers uh to read the book in advance of the launch and I think I will be launching I don't know I'm gonna keep that one quiet for now all right so uh what's next Rebel of the week. Ah, right. I have been reliably informed from Becca, the ever amazing Becca, that we are but squeaky close to no stories. So if you have a rebellion, please, please send it in to Becca. We are desperate for more stories. You, you guys know how much I love reading out the Rebel of the Week stories. So please, 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 can you send uh, your Rebel stories to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com and remember it can be any kind of story something big something small or something in between so yes please do the rebel of the week in the meantime is Carla Halia Carla says first of all I love the podcast there is nothing that warms the heart of a fifth grade teacher than hearing someone say fuck with a British accent on my commute to <laughs> into warp little minds well fuck it you fuck 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 there you go darling okay i wanted to share my rebel story from when i was in a, in sixth grade a bazillion years ago as a reader introvert and usually the smartest kid in the room i wasn't shy about sharing my opinion on things when my english slash reading teacher who was one of those old <laughs> old hags that would have chain smoked her way through the day barking at the children she hated if she had been allowed announced our next book was Diary of Anne Frank I raised my hand and shared the ending to that one is really sad if you're looking for a good coming of age book with a female main character may I suggest and proceeded to reel off a series of books with happier endings the teacher called my mother and suggested I had a problem dealing with reality what the because I didn't want to read the book uh, she was about to assign. My mother paused for a moment and said, did it ever occur to you that... <laughs> did it ever occur to you that she knows the ending because she already read the book? The next day, the teacher announced a new book for the class. It wasn't one of the ones on my list, but it wasn't Anne Frank either. By the way, I'm that fifth grade teacher that teaches in a way that has my class saying things to me saying things to me like you were talking to us and then five minutes later it hits me damn you taught us stuff again when we didn't expect it that came after i explained the dent method of writing pulp fiction and then while watching wonder over yonder i said oh wait is this the protagonist getting in deeper oh wait look it's getting piled on him even more i also turned them on to mark mcginnis's podcast a breath of air to teach how to break down and analyze poetry 
After listening to two episodes on Italian versus English sonnets, one of my 10-year-olds wrote a fucking sonnet about the autumn. A fucking sonnet at 10 years old. I don't know about you, but I didn't know what the hell a sonnet was until I was in high school. Another one wrote a poem from the point of view of his cat, wondering where humans that feed him go when the door closes every day. Is it a wonder why I can't get a job in a public school and have to teach at a private one? <laughs> Rebels who want to teach instead of instruct don't last long in public schools oh I love this so much I um I love the fact that the teach it didn't occur to the, like the teacher because when I was reading like obviously I was like yeah well she knows the ending because she's read the book but anyway I absolutely love that the teacher did not clock on to that and that just shows like wow total plonker loved the story thank you so so much uh, so, new patrons this week, Tara D, V.E. Griffith, and Liz Lazo, which is a corking name. Thank you so much for joining me, all of you. And hopefully you've all had your information sent to you now in uh, Patreon for all of the goodies that you get. I wanted to say a huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. I really, really appreciate all of your support. It helps to keep the show running, it helps to pay for my time, and it helps me know that you guys want this to continue. Um, if you would like to support the show as well as get bonus content like Poison and Prose sessions, and I've just sent out the dates for all of the uh, 2023 Poison and Prose sessions, the Rebel Masterclasses. The next one we are doing is on uh, mythology retellings and sexual tension. So if you would like to join the classes, then you can join from, uh, from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, uh, this week we are talking to John Truby. So let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by John Truby. John is the founder and director of Truby's Writers Studio. Over the past 30 years, he has taught more than 50,000 students worldwide, including novelists, screenwriters and TV writers. Together, these writers have generated more than $15 billion at the box office. Truby has an ongoing program where he works with students who are actively creating shows, movies, and novel series. He regularly applies his genre techniques in story consulting work with ma major studios, including Disney, Sony Pictures, Fox, HBO, the BBC, good for us in England, <laughs> Canal Plus, Globo, and AMC. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Leslie, and their two cats, Tink and Peanut. And of course, as a cat lover myself, what breed are your cats or what, what type of cats are they? You know what? They're very different. I don't know the actual name, but 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 Tink is got very thick fur that hangs low. Um, and... Peanut is very long and thin with a fairly thin fur. So I don't know. Okay. But, you know, just to give you an example, Peanut is right here. She always likes to, whenever I give a class or an interview, she likes to be right here to help me out. And she's Aww. just such a great help. Oh, we've just got two. We got two kittens last week um, and they are both rag dolls and they're a brother and sister. And uh, one of them sits on my desk all day and the other one like so this one likes to sit on the desk, but doesn't necessarily want to be on your lap or necessarily to be stroked, but always wants to be close to you. And the other yeah. one loves a stroke but doesn't want to sit near you. So like the, she will sit on, on my, I've got a big chair over here and she'll sit on the chair over there, but, and like wants to be straight, but then she's like, oh, go away. I'm yeah. done with you. Yes. Like, yes. Yes. 
I love, love I love cat personalities. I just love them. Me too. I will read any story with a talking cat, like literally <laughs> any story. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, enough about kittens. Tell everyone a little bit about your journey. That is one hell of a fucking bio. So, so how have you come to where you are today? Well, it, it's a long journey for sure. <laughs> when I first started writing stories, and it's a long time ago, uh, there were no books that I could find on how to do that. So I had to be self-taught. And what I did was I read as many great novels and saw as many great movies as I could in, in a relatively short period of time. This is about over about a three-year period. And what I did was I broke them down to see what works and what doesn't work. And what I found out was that about 90% of what works comes from the deep story structure under the surface. And based on that work, and it was very important that I go to the stories themselves, instead of coming up with some theory and then trying to make stories fit that, I wanted to see how do stories work and then try to extrapolate out and see what are there some techniques and principles that we can use that we know will work in any story. And so I came up with a theory of story that was based on, if if I could describe it in one line, it's the organic development of the hero as they move through the plot. And then I translated that overarching idea into specific practical techniques. And I began writing stories and helping other writers write their stories. And this then led to a lot of consulting work, um, which includes all the studios that you just read off. And I started to get a reputation for being really good at story. And as you probably know, Hollywood is a small town and your reputation gets around pretty fast. And so based on all this consulting work on story that I was doing, I at some point decided to teach a course called The Anatomy of Story, which is also the name of my first book. And that course just caught fire because there is such a thirst out there worldwide. And I've taught this this course all over the world. And there's such a thirst for knowing exactly how to, the the specific techniques for writing a story, because we face the blank page and story theory doesn't help us. You know, it's got to be very specific, practical things you can use. And so that's why so many students have taken the course and, and they've done so well. And the book itself, Anatomy of Story, has sold over 200,000 copies worldwide in nine different languages. Um, Now, it's interesting that a lot of times I will talk to writers, and when I explain to them what I do, they typically say, oh, I know all about story. And they say, "Uh, I use three-act structure, or I use the hero's journey, or I use save the cat. And they think that's all they need. Um, But here's the problem that they're not even really aware of. Those kind of books are fine for beginners, but they have very few practical story techniques and certainly very little having to do with how you would write write a great story at the professional level. 
And remember, we're talking about being in the top 1% of writers here, because we're talking about stories that can be published, or if you're writing stories as an indie novelist, stories that can break out from the thousands of other people writing those stories. And so when I wrote The Anatomy of Story, my intention was to include all the professional story techniques that a writer would need to have a chance to write a best-selling novel. But the one subject it does not cover, which is now absolutely crucial to writing a bestseller, is how do you write the different genres that make up 99% of storytelling today? And that's why for the last five years, I've been writing The Anatomy of Genres, and thankfully, because I don't know if I could have taken it any longer, it's now here, it's now published. Um, and I really believe it's going to really change how writers in every medium tell their stories. And it is a beast of a book as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. It's literally a weapon. Like, yes, it is. How big it is. It's like 700 odd pages, isn't it? Yes, um, it is. Okay. So... You start the book talking about why story is so critical. Um, right. And I wondered if we could start with that as it's so foundational. Um, you say that stories are maps of humanity. What does that mean? Um, and why is story so crucial for, hu for, for humans? <laughs> right, right. Well, the answer to that is right in the subtitle of the book. The book is called The Anatomy of Genres, How Story Forms Explain the Way w the World Works. and what it comes down to is, you know, we always think of, well, human beings, we tell stories. Well, yes, we do. But more importantly, we are stories, beginning with the very first story of our lives, which is me. From, the, from when we're born, we are participating in our own story that hits all of the basic structure steps that you see in a good story, starting off with weakness need. It is our initial one, since we have no psychology at that point, our initial one is, is a physical weakness, a physical need. I am hungry. And followed by the next step in, in any good story is the desire line, the goal. And that is mother's milk, you know? And, and so if I can put those together now, as we get a little bit older, we start to parse things out and we start to see that there's certain people who are my allies and there are certain people who are opponents to me. And so everything we do in our life from the very beginning, we do through me as the hero and everyone else are the other characters in my story. So stories really tell us two major things. First of all, how the world works. And second of all, how do you live successfully in the world? And that means that genres, which are types of stories, are different windows in how the world works, and they give us different life philosophies for how to live successfully. This is the part of the book that I think is so revolutionary, and it's going to really change how writers work. And, and just to give your listeners some examples that are right from the beginning of the book, um, and, and I'll go through just some of the different genres here. Myth represents a journey to understand oneself and gain immortality. Memoir is not about the past. It's about creating your future. Fantasy is about finding the magic in the world and in ourselves to turn life 
into art. Detective fiction shows us how to think successfully by comparing different stories to learn what is true. And love stories, which I talk about in the book as the highest of all genres, reveal love stories reveal that happiness comes from mastering the moral act of loving another person. So this is where we're taking, taking story to its deepest level and the level that I believe has the most impact on readers. So how do you define genre then? Um, in the book, I think it's 14. You say there are 14 core. It is 14, major. isn't it? Yeah, 14, yes, 14 major, major genres. genres. Yeah. Um, and that... I, I love that you um, gave the examples of those because when I read that, I was like, oh, like the one that really hit me. And I don't write memoir. Right. But when I read that, that it's not really about the past, it's about creating the future. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like that felt like an epiphany already to me. And I don't even write right. bloody memoir. Right. Um, so yeah, I love that. But so how are you actually defining genre? Because we're always, we hear it all the time. Know your genre, know your genre, yep. make sure you're writing in your genre, make sure you write to genre, write to your, you know, tropes or whatever, write to your niche. Yep. Um, so like, what is your personal definition or the, the definition that you're using in the book for genre? Sure. In writing the first chapter of the book, I talk about the fact that there are, in my opinion, three rules for success in storytelling in every medium. And that if a writer doesn't know what these rules are and play by these rules, they have virtually no chance to succeed. Rule number one is the storytelling business buys and sells genres. That is what their true business is about. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that genres are, the, the, the strict definition of genre is a type of story, but they're much more than that. They're really the all-stars of the story world in that these are story forms that have achieved huge popular success over centuries and sometimes for example, in the case of myth, over thousands of years. In other words, they're proven. These are the, th the stories that people love, regardless of the culture that they live in, regardless of the time that they live in this world. And so what I talk about is that writers who want to succeed professionally have to write the stories that the business, whether that's publishers, studios, or just readers, that those people want to buy. And- so what, what that means is that storytelling, you win the storytelling game by mastering genre structure. And that means, first and foremost, mastering 15 to 20 story beats that are unique to each form. Because what, what genres are at the bottom line is plot systems. Mm -hmm. And until you know the plot system that you're working in, you can't compete with everybody else working in that form. So I have a question about that's just occurred to me as you were talking um, that romance is the highest genre. And I agree because I love romance. But what is interesting to me is that myth isn't because mm. if myth has endured and is almost like the original story, how is it that myth isn't the highest genre? It's because when I talk about the highest genre, I I specifically 
discuss each of the genres in a certain order based on the life philosophy that they expressed to the reader. And so we begin at the lowest level, the most primal level with horror, followed by, which is about confronting death, the fact that we are all mortal. And how do you deal with that, either in this world or the next world? Next, next up the ladder is action, right? Action is, action says, you know, living successfully in the world is 90% just taking action, right? It's not about, are you really good at it? It's just first and foremost, just do it, right? Because that has primal force to it. So I go all the way up through these different steps. Now, myth, I think, is number three, because partly because there in the book I talk about genres aren't just alone they are tend to be part of genre families so you have for example the speculative fiction family which is horror science fiction and fantasy they're related they're different but they are related as well same is true with myth action and western and so myth is very much of that action idea of you have to take action. And the way you do it in myth stories is the character goes on a journey, which ultimately, re and then they ultimately return home, having learned what was already inside, having learned what their truest capabilities are. So myth is early because it's about how do you define and create the self? And the way myth says you do it instead of, well, I would do it by if I were trying to create myself, I'd sit in my room and think about myself for a whole lot of time, right? No, Mill says you're not going to do it that way. You have to go on a physical journey. You have to defeat opponents trying to prevent you from getting your goal, only to find out by going through that journey and being tested who I really am and what is my worth. So that's why, and when I say it, it's one of the lower forms, that doesn't mean that it's you know, what it's telling us is not incredibly valuable. One of the things I talk about in the book is that even though even though fantasy at, at the very top of the ladder, we have fantasy, detective and love. It's and, and those are the life philosophies that, that, that they give us are very powerful and useful for us to live well. It, the real deeper message of the book is you need all of these life philosophies, because they all give us a different aspect of living that, you know, you can you can really master the art of love. But if you can't deal with your own mortality, if you cannot face the sins that you have committed and you have not paid for, then it's not going to matter. So all of these all of these different genres and their the themes that they give us are necessary for a complete rich life. Okay, and I think that's a great segue because I asked my patrons what they wanted me to ask you. And a lot of the questions circled around the same kind of question. So I'm mm. just going to wrap all of these together. Sure. Age old device for writers is to stick to your lane, yep. um, right in your genre. And two patrons so yanni was the first one who said is there a limit to how many genres you can cross without muddy muddying the concept of your book 
And I know that in your book, you specifically state that you should be mixing genres. And you talk about Star Wars a little bit there when you when you do that. Um, but I actually think that's going to come as a surprise to a lot of people yeah. because we are told to stick to our lane. Um, and the other patron, Shane, asks, how closely do we have to stick to genre tropes and conventions in order to be commercially successful? Is there room right. to maneuver? So I just wondered if you could talk to that. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Because you're absolutely right. Those are great questions. They are fundamental to being successful in storytelling in every medium, certainly in writing the novel. And so to, to answer the first question, um, you do have to be careful in terms of mixing genres. I would say the limit is anywhere from two to four that you can mix. And there's two cautions with that. First of all, they have to be right for the story idea. We don't just throw in a genre because, oh, the love interest would be really helpful for getting readers. No, it's got to be right for the idea. And the second is that you have to be really good at writing them. And re writers don't understand how complex these story systems are. They've been developed over hundreds of years where they worked out the kinks in the system. And so they're really, really tight forms and with a lot of elements going on. So what that means is that you have to know how to sequence the beats of that form. Now, as I mentioned right at the beginning that I talk about the three rules of being successful in storytelling. And this, the rule number two is one of the biggest keys to popular success is that you want to combine two to four genres. And let me explain why that is so important, even though it goes counter to what many of us, many of us have been told. Over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a major increase in plot density in every medium. And this is basically the marketing people saying, we got to give them two or three for the price of one. Now, this is also true, by the way, in film, where in film, unless you're James Cameron, you get two hours. That's it. Right? <laughs> James Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah true, true. And since since only James Cameron is James Cameron, it means the rest of us are limited to two hours. And so what Hollywood did was it said, okay, well, how can we give them more for that same two hours? And the trick is mixing genres because mixing genres allows you to multiply the number of story beats in the story and that is the most important element to having the chance for writing a bestseller so how do you know how to balance them though how do you know which beats to pick because obviously you can't you, you're not gonna you're not gonna have you're not, you can't hit all of the beats for all of them. Otherwise, you've got literally, you're smushing two. I don't know. I don't even know how that would work. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how to balance them? Absolutely. And, and this is a huge problem for writers. The first step is getting to know that, oh, we need to mix the genres. But then when they try to do that, they run up into up to a massive problem, which is, if you don't know what you're doing, you get story chaos because you're mixing all these genres. Which each genre has its own hero. So if you're mixing a bunch of them, you have too many heroes, too many opponents, too many desire lines, too many story spines. So the solution is, first solution is 
choose a primary genre because that gives you your hero, your main opponent, a single desire line, which is absolutely essential in a good story. And it tells you the primary plot beats and the main theme that you're going to express. Once you start with that primary genre as your foundation line, you then add the other beats to the other genres only where they fit. Because sometimes these genres are opposites of each other. They You can't do all the beats in all of those genres in the same story. And so you have to choose. I start with the main genre beats. I have to hit those. My primary, And this, by the way, is also how you help to sell your story. Because when somebody says, well, what's your genre? You tell them your primary genre. You know, as the writer, that you mixed other genres in as well. But this allows them to say, oh, this is how we're going to market it. But the, the point is, you start with the primary form, add the other genre beats where they work. And if they don't work, don't do them. Mm, okay. Okay. And you talk about Star Wars in there. I wondered if you yeah. could just uh, give a little brief overview of how, because that that is definitely a mix of genres. So oh, I wondered yeah. if you could just give that as, the, as an example. Star Wars, the first Star Wars was absolutely revolutionary in in modern storytelling in every medium because two years before star wars in 1975 jaws came out based on a book single genre horror done really well two years later star wars comes out it is a mix of at least four genres right probably more but what Hollywood learned from that, and it was a massive worldwide hit, was that it was not just telling one genre, it is combining all of these because, again, you get incredible plot density. So with Star Wars, you get things, you get fantasy, you get elements of science fiction, you get elements of the Western, and you get elements of the King Arthur story. So on, and you get elements of the samurai story, which is a kind of Western action story. All of these happening in the same two hours of film. And all of a sudden, with this massive hit, Hollywood says, Oh, we're in a mixed genre world now. We're not in the single genre world now. And that changed everything. Uh, yeah, it, it is revolutionary. And now I just want to go and like read all the books and watch all the movies to try uh. and spot how they are mixing the genres. Because I think for me, the thing that I find the most interesting is is almost like the rhythm of the of the films and how they do so successfully um, uh, uh, mix the two. Films that are, where, where does heist come in? Because I was just thinking of like the Thomas Crown Affair, which is like a romance, but also a heist. How does, where does heist come in, in terms of the genres? Where would you put that? Well, in the book, I talk about the 14 major genres, but each one of those major genres has a number of subgenres, and those have subgenres and so on. And so when you go on Amazon, you see all these different categories within the larger genre forms. Heist, also known as a caper, is a subform of both crime and action. Okay. And it is very plot heavy. Um, I, a friend of mine who's a professional screenwriter told me she was going to write a, 
a heist story. I said, great. Two months later, I talked to her. She said, I'm not writing that anymore. I found, <laughs> I'm not good enough in plot to write that um, because it's it's like the crime, the serious version of farce. All of the pieces have got to be fit together incredibly detailed and precise way down to the split second. Um, but one of the things I talk about in the book, one of the ways that you mix genres to set yourself apart from the crowd is you mix genres that are not normally put together that the audience has never seen before. And perfect example of this is Inception. Inception oh, is a is a heist science fiction story. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we're saying, whoa, I've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. And you get the benefit of and, and this is why mixing genres is so important because you get the pleasure of both forms. Um, who who wrote Inception? Is it the? I'm trying to think of the guy who. The brothers. It, I, I believe. That's uh, not who I thought it was. I thought it was the guy who wrote Tenet for a second there, but um, and he wrote Interstellar as well. I think. Yeah, yes, it is the same. Oh, it is the same guy. Yes. Yep. Oh, yeah. He he has done pretty much all my favorite movies. Yeah. <laughs> I remember well, his he is, name is he, now off the top of my head. He and his brother, and they've written together. Also, they did The Dark Knight and so on. Um, th- they are masters of mixing genres. Yeah. Uh, and this is why they are both, again, again, one of the things I've really emphasized in the book is that this isn't just about writing something a story that's super popular. It's also writing a story that's great. Mm. And the, the to if you know your genres, and this really brings up rule number three, which is the way you stand out from the crowd. And one of the major ways that this the entire storytelling business goes at this time is you must transcend your form. And that means a number of things. And I talk in the in the opening chapter about there's three ways that you do that. But one of them, the first way is that, you you play with the beats, you bend the beats, you uh, do the beats in a unique way that we've never seen before. Um, and this is, or you change the order of the beats. And this is absolutely essential because if you don't do that, then you are doing the same story that everyone else in that form is doing. You know, genre, also part of the word genre is generic. And we don't we want to write a genre story, but we don't want it to be generic. We want it to be so unique that only you could have written it. And that way your reader gets to have their cake and eat it too, which is they get the love of the beats of the form they love so well, but they also see those beats done in a way they've never seen before. And that's delightful to them. And they say, yes, that's what I wanted. Oh, I love this. It it makes me want to be a better writer, which I think is the <laughs> point, right? <laughs> That's um, the point of the book. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so how do you see tropes then? So like to me, a trope is like enemies to lovers or fake dating, for example. Like how do tropes play in for you to genre? Is it just... Yeah. Is, is a trope as a mini micro sub niche or is it a tool or a device or how do you see genre, uh, sorry tropes interplay with genres? Well, it brings up what I consider one of the biggest misconceptions in story, which is a misconception about tropes. 
And it, when I talk about this, it's not just a semantic thing. It's really fundamental. And I think it's really crucial for writers to understand this distinction. Tropes are individual story units. They're unconnected to each other. And what many writers mistakenly believe is that you just grab a few tropes that, oh, let's use this one, and then we can grab that one and so on. We put them together, and we're on our way. Big mistake. If you write that way, I believe that you reach one-tenth of your true storytelling ability. And the difference is that a genre is a story system, and it's the entire sequence of story beats that make it work. So instead of having this unconnected beat, we not only have story beats, which are different from tropes, a story beat is a plot event with structural power, with structural importance. So instead of just having an individual story element, we have story beats that sequence and connect and build. And what this means is, first of all, you have to hit all the genre beats in your form. And second of all, you have to transcend those beats, which means twist them, but it also means express the life philosophy that's embedded in the theme. And this area of theme is what most writers do not know. They don't play with. They're, they're either afraid of it because they don't want to preach to the audience, which they're right to be afraid of that. And so what they do is they, they back off a theme totally, and they've just given up the most powerful punch to the audience, to the reader that they have in their arsenal. It's gone. And so, and that's why I say that in rule three, and, and this is why in the first half of each chapter, I go through all of the beats of that genre in sequence. Then in the second half of the chapter, I talk about how do you transcend this particular genre, both how do you twist those beats and what is the life philosophy it's expressing that you need to get into the structure of your story. And, you know, so, you know, basically what you're doing is it's not a matter of do I hit the beats or not, or do I just use tropes or not? The trick is, yes, hit all of the beats, but definitely play with them. Don't be locked into, oh, these. this is the sequence of the beats. This is how I have to hit them. Otherwise, I can't tell a good genre story. Absolutely wrong. And you've talked a little bit there about twisting Twisting yeah. the the, and I might get it wrong. Did you say twisting the genre, or did you say tw the, twisting, twisting the beats? story beats this, in the genre? Yes. Yeah. Um. And I think one of the things that we like advice that we they say the the right. unidentifiable they um yeah. is is to twist the tropes, twist twist yeah. the story, make it fresh, make it feel fresh, mm -hmm. but also keeping the heart. And I think right. in this case, it would be genre, keeping the heart of the genre um, the same. So what does that mean? How do we do that? Do you have any tangible sure. advice for listeners on how they can twist and bend uh, beats and, uh, and or genre, genre mushing together in order Absolutely. to make things work and be fresh and exciting? Absolutely. I'm all about practical techniques. Um, to me, if it's not practical, it might as well not exist. So there's two ways that we twist the beats. One is we execute the beat in a new way. And second, we change the order of the beats. And let me just give you some examples and some of your listeners some examples. First of all, examples of executing the beat in a unique way. 
In the myth form, you often get the beat of the birth of the hero. The problem with that is that it gives you a slow start to the story. Because we, you know, we got to have the birth of the hero, and then he's going to grow up, and then we can do all this stuff before he goes on his journey. So what they do, for example, in Avatar, which is a combination of myth plus action plus love, and James Cameron always hits those three, and he's the best in the business at combining them. But what he does in Avatar is that he starts with the rebirth of the hero. And in fact, there are three rebirths in that story. Now, another myth beat is the talisman. Early on in the story, the hero gains an object of power or significance that expresses the hero's basic identity. And normally when it's a male myth, and most myth stories are, the talisman is something like a sword. But an avatar, which and what makes Avatar so revolutionary in story is that it is a story which moves from male myth to female myth. And so the talisman there is not a male talisman like sword. It's the seed of the sacred tree. And this brings up a, a really interesting, for me, a very interesting point that I talk about a lot in the myth chapter in the book, which is that we are right now living through two major revolutions in story. The first is the rise of television as an art form. The second is the reemergence of the female myth. Now, female myth has been gone from Western culture for 3,000 years, and it's been a huge loss. But just in literally the last 10 years, female myth has started to come back, and it's coming back really fast and really popular. And in the myth chapter, I talk about this fundamental difference between how you write male myth versus how you write female myth. And I use, the, for male myth, I use primarily um, Lord of the Rings. Female myth, and this, this, this guy was very ahead of his time, Wizard of Oz. This is very definitely a female myth story, 100 years, 100 plus years before the female myth really started to come back. And I believe that the female myth will be a major story form in worldwide story for the next few decades at the very least. Let me give, let me go, go back to another example of executing the beat in a unique way. A beat in one of the beats in romance is the first dance, which is basically it's very important because it's it's love through action. And again, take Avatar, for example, which it's not primarily love, but love is very important there. The, the first dance is done in the air as each fly on their own banshee. In broadcast news, it's a dance of words because she's the producer talking through his earpiece during a broadcast emergency. Um, now, let me give you an example of changing the order of the beats. In most love stories, the first dance and the first kiss happened in the middle of the story at the first and second reveal. But in the French romantic comedy Heartbreaker, and if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's terrific. The first dance happens in what would normally be the battle scene at the end when they recreate the final dance from Dirty Dancing. And the first kiss happens in the very last scene. The fact that the writers did those two beats together, move them from the middle to the end, gives the ending a tremendous power and it makes it, in my opinion, one of the best romantic comedies ever done. 
I have never recognized that. So like I, I I'm so, my, my mind is like racing because so I often use tropes. Like for yep. me, tropes have plot structures in a, in them. Like there are certain beats that you mm-hmm. have to hit. Um, but I never thought about changing the order and it's just I'm almost annoyed at myself because like (laughs) of course like we don't too often we are told this is the way that things work this is story structure this is you know and then we we get told that and we stick to it and we cling to it and actually of course one of the ways to make things fresh is to change up the order as long as you're still um, hitting the beats and I suppose that is probably like the heart of a time time travel story you know because they mess up oh, order totally. and structure all, all totally. of the time so yeah I'm frustrated with myself that I like didn't ever think that you could like oh god I need to go and deconstruct something now myself <laughs> I need to understand how they're doing it all um okay so in your book you do go into great depth uh, on the 14 main genres. Um, but of course, we do not have time to go through 14 genres, much as I would love to. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask three questions about yeah. two genres. Sure. Um, and it was tough choice, really, because I know that we've got um, a wide range of writers who listen to the show. Um, but I've decided to ask about sort of fantasy and mm-hmm. romance. So the first question is, are there, and so all three of these questions apply to both fantasy and to romance. So the first question is, are there any mistakes that we should avoid that would be seen as like really core mistakes to a fantasy or to a romance? Uh, Do you want me to tell you them all or should we go one by one? Um, Why don't don't you tell me them all and then I'll, I'll just go through them. For each genre. You know, for each one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So what mistakes should we avoid? Um, what should we focus on to really make our fantasy or romance the best story or or the most appealing story to readers of that, ro- that genre? Mm-hmm. And then the last one is about that theme. You talked about the theme right at the beginning of this conversation um, and kind of the philosophy, I think you were calling it. Um, so... What advice do you have to writers to weave that into the stories in a better, more like a sure. richer way, a more effective way without sure. preaching, I suppose? These these are all great questions. They're absolutely fundamental to success as a storyteller. Um, let me let me start off with the with a key mistake in fantasy that that is absolutely many writers make and you've got to avoid it. Um Many fantasy writers think it's all about the fantasy world. And obviously, world building in a fantasy world is huge. So, but what they do is because they think it's all it's all about this fantasy world and how great it is to be there, they move the hero from the mundane world at the beginning into the fantasy world too quickly. And this is a huge mistake because it means they have not linked the hero to the world. In other words, they have a story where the fantasy world is not an expression of the hero's main weakness, main flaw. And the fantasy world is is designed to solve the hero's internal flaw. 
That's the whole point of going there in the first place. So you have to take time up front to set up the character flaw. So the story has it, it'll have great visuals, but it's going to have heart as well. That's what really makes it pay off. And then when the when you send the character to the, the fantasy world, there's a fundamental reason that that character must be there. It's not that they happen to be there. They have to be there. Now, in terms of focusing, what to focus on to make the fantasy story the most appealing to readers, um, I'm going to give you a big answer. That is also, it, it is the game, which is learn the fantasy story beats and then transcend them. Um, anything else you do in particular pales in comparison to that. Now, obviously, that's a, a big task. That's why I wrote the book, because I want to show writers exactly how to do that. Now, to the third question about theme, the overriding theme, what advice for getting the fantasy theme into your story? You do it without preaching. Very important. You do it by how you execute the beats. Because these beats express the theme automatically. They, and they do it through the story structure, so you don't have to preach to your readers in the in, in dialogue. So, as I mentioned about fantasy when I was talking at the beginning of our talk, fantasy is about finding the magic in the world and in ourselves to turn life into art. And that means that the character has to overcome regimen and a strict way of thinking so that they can live with spontaneity and freedom. That is the overall thematic movement and character change that your hero should undergo. And if you express that in the structure of the story through the beats, you will transcend the form and you will set yourself apart from all those other people. And there's a lot of them, as you know, who are writing fantasy stories. Now, what about romance? For mistake, let's again and. You know, I wish we had more time because there's so many cautions that I want to give writers about these forms, but we don't have that time. But but again, for romance, let's start with the setup of the story. And so much of the success of any story is found in the setup and so many of the mistakes. And just by the way, for your, your listeners, when they're doing rewrites, if you want to find out 90 percent of the source of the problems throughout the book, go to the beginning at the setup and you'll find it right there. So for love stories, the love story is the only major genre where there are two main characters. And what many writers fail to do is they fail to set up the internal flaw of both characters. Now, love stories are about blossoming. And what that means is you wanna make sure both characters start the story shut down. And they're shut down about love. They are unable to love in some way for some reason. Both characters. What that does is it means that by the end of the story, you need to make sure that both characters blossom, open up, because of the heat and light and love of the other person. If you can get that connection from the proper setup, it's a winner. It's a winner. Now, again, how you do that, make it appealing to the uh, to the readers. 
again, it's all about transcending that form. And, and let me talk about this theme because the theme is, I mentioned at the very beginning that genres are plot systems. They're also theme systems. And that's the part that almost no writers really grasp to the full degree of its power because it makes all the difference in the world in your terms of your success. So for romance, it's not about the emotion of love, as many writers think, although obviously that has to be there. The reason love stories are the highest genre is because they give us they give us the recipe for day-to-day happiness. And that means learning how to love. And as I mentioned earlier, love stories reveal that happiness comes from mastering the moral act of loving another person. And this is so, it's emotion. Yes, we have to start with that. That's got to be the foundation of a good love story. you got to have the spark. But what really plays out through the story in terms of the character change is both characters undergo character change by learning the best from the other. And that means how do we learn to live together and be better as a unit, as a team, than we are individually? Yeah, and I'm smiling because I'm like, oh, yes. Like, <laughs> I love a love story. This is exactly yep. why I love a love story. Yep. Yes, <laughs> so we that, do. Yeah, like, and I'm like, oh, because they love from each other. Of course they do. This is why I love romance. There is, there is, nothing, there is nothing that, for me, that is more... You know, the tears come when you see when, it, when the writer has been able to show two people find that thing together through struggle. It's just the catharsis is intense. There's nothing to me more emotionally fulfilling than that of any form. Yeah. Oh, you've given me some ideas as well. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for that. I can't believe this is the end. However... This is the Rebel Author Podcast. Ah. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. That is such a great question. Um, (laughs) It's brilliant. It's just brilliant. Um, For me, I would say the biggest time that happened was way back a long time ago when I was 22 years old. And I had just gotten out of college and I didn't know what to do with my life. And I had been a philosophy major in college, and I knew that I could make a good living practicing law, being a lawyer, right? But I had a burning desire to tell stories. And so I was confronted with a decision right then and there, and I decided to be a rebel, Mm -hmm. and I decided to take the hard road of learning what I consider to be the most difficult craft in the world, which is the craft of writing, the craft of story. And it turned out that that decision was very costly. It took many years, a lot of pain, a lot of struggle. It was also the greatest decision I ever made. I love it. I love that writing is your rebellion. And I think that is I think that writing in itself is a rebellion. Like, I don't know, for me, rebellion is all about 
finding joy like we rebel because we are unhappy about a thing so the fact that then writing is that thing that brought you joy is amazing um thank you so much for your time today would you like to tell everybody where they can find your new book where they can find out more about you and anything else that you would like to add Sure. And first of all, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. I've just loved talking about this with you. Um, For the book, um, best thing to do is just go to the link anatomy of genres. That's all one word, anatomyofgenres.com. And for story courses and story software, just go to truby.com, T-R-U-B-Y.com. Um, and uh, if there's any questions that people have, um, they can go to my website and we'll be happy to answer them. And, uh, and hopefully the, this book will be part of, you know, their library. And I hope that it gives them a tremendous amount of help in their struggle to master the craft of story going forward. I can't wait to get a physical copy so that I can scribble all over it and mark yes. it up and sticky have it. <laughs> so yep. Thank you. Thank you so much. And of course, a giant thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to John Truby. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Joining me next week is one of my currently favourite authors, Scarlett St. Clair. I absolutely adore her fantasy romance. So she wrote uh, King of Battle and Blood and the Hades versus Persephone, uh, A Touch of Darkness series. I have read book one in that series and I have read uh, King of Battle and Blood as well. And I loved them both. And I actually really loved talking to her as well. She's a fucking powerhouse of a woman for a start. Uh, Feminist, a fighter. She uh, started out indie and has a trad contract she was picked up because she's so successful uh, with trad and I just like I'm just in awe of her I just loved everything about her and her style as well (laughs) Look at me. I sound like I have a crush. But anyway, no, you guys need to um, come and listen to the episode because she's just fucking fantastic. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.